Nation. My name's Warren Shute, and I'm here today on this very windy, blistery day with the delightful Paul. How are you today, Paul? I'm good, thanks, Warren. How are you? I'm very good, very good. So um, today, you're kind of like my Valentine. We're going to do a Valentine. Yeah, apparently so, yeah. I I don't know how your wife would feel about that, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or your wife would be, yeah, absolutely. I thought, given the um, given we're in Valentine's season now, we should uh, we we should do an episode on couples and money. Um, I and and if, I think so. I think it's really important. a little bit contentious, but I'm I'm hoping you can smooth the waters a little. Yeah, I think money is a very emotional um, item, discussion point, um, and relationships obviously are. So put the two together, you've either got sweet sailing or you know, a, a dismal failure. So it's great to have some kind of rules and some criteria around money before you even get into bed, so to speak, but more so as time goes on to make sure you develop together. Yeah, okay. So I, I guess let, let's start at the beginning then. When should we start discussing money? When, when, when's the right time? You know, if you, if, you, if, if you go back to the beginning of a long-term relationship, it starts with courting, doesn't it? It starts with, well, nowadays, it starts with texting and stuff. You can tell my age when I start saying the word courting. But start going out on dates and things. Um, and at that stage, it's really like who pays for things. You know, who pays for the meal, um, who, who suggests what, that kind of thing. And I think that's just down to an individual's rule base. It wouldn't be right for me to say, oh, actually, so-and-so should pay, or you should both pay, that kind of thing. Um, Traditionally, my father's a lot older, so traditionally, I've been, I was always more of a gentleman and I was generally paid because that was the, the value base that my family instilled on me. But that doesn't mean it's right. That's just what I had. So when it comes to buying things, I think it's really just a, a natural thing. A lot of people say, well, if you've invited me out for dinner, then you should pay, that kind of thing. But I wouldn't really get into the conversation of money at that stage. I would probably wait until we're looking to do something jointly together. So perhaps it might be the first thing you do is go on a holiday together and you then you start discussing the holiday. And then that's a great opportunity to understand whether the person's going to be paying cash or just putting it on their credit card. And if they put it on their credit card, you could then raise the question very naturally, oh, how will you pay that off? Will you pay it off when the bill comes through? Or do you carry your credit card statement forward and start accumulating it? And that might naturally open up a conversation around um, debt and how you've got it. Um, and then obviously you've got the, the stage where you potentially move in together, uh, whether that's renting or buying. Um, hopefully we'll cover that in a second. And that's really when there needs to be a bit more of a formal conversation around money of, okay, how are we going to do this kind of thing? So nice and softly, softly at the beginning, um, no set kind of rules. And I think when the opportunity arises and people put things on their credit card, or if they spend a lot of money, they go on big spending trips, oh, how do you pay for that? Oh, that's great. I wish I could do that kind of thing. Um, if you put on a credit card, oh, when do you tend to pay your credit card off? Is it just every month or do you carry it forward? How's that go for you? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, okay, sure. So I, I guess then let, let's take it forward a little bit as you, as you have done there, where... We, we want to sit down and have a proper conversation about it. And are the, is the advice you give any different than you do with, with someone on their own that's looking to, to take control of their money? What, what yeah. are the, the kind of early steps? What, what's first? I think the, the real big thing is, yes, it is different. And the real big thing is because we have a blueprint. We have a map of what our life looks like. 
and my map of the world and my life is different from your map. And we could both talk about a same event, but our interpretation of that event will be different. So when I think about my future, um, or shall I rephrase that, when I think about the future, how I interpret that future will be different how you interpret it. And that's the same with your partner. So if you're getting together with someone, it's a great opportunity to start talking about your future. And this doesn't need to be money-centric. It doesn't have to be just focused on money, but it does need to be focused on you as a couple. And good of things would be, do you want children? It's probably a good idea to ask the question if you want children before you decide to commit to a long-term relationship with each other. Because if one of you don't and one of you does, it's a lot easier to sort things out before you're right involved. Um, obviously, money is another one. You know, what are your values? What are your beliefs around money in respect of if we do have children, will one of you want to give up work so that they could raise the children? Or would you have a career that is really important to you that you continue that career? And neither one of those is wrong and neither one of those is right. What's right and wrong is what's right and wrong to you. Um, and, and also it's like retirement. You know, what is your goal? What's your bigger picture? What's your compelling vision as a couple? Is it that you will work on your careers, dedicate your life tirelessly to the building of your career or to Patrick sort of charitable events? Or is it that actually your outcome is to retire as early as possible so you can just go sailing around the world and enjoy the beach? Again, neither one is wrong. It depends what's important to you. Um, you tend to find the biggest arguments come of when, it's, when your values are broken. When our values are broken, we feel unhappy. We feel um, unappreciated. And that's when arguments and tension builds. And a good example is um, if, you, if you think of a couple and um, one of them enjoys spending and one of them sees money as freedom, okay? Um, so say, for example, one of them goes out and spends lots of money, okay? Now, when they come back, and they come back with all their bags and their big joy on their face, and they're very, very happy, the one who has value, uh, sorry, values money as freedom is going to turn around and say, what are you doing? You're spending all this money. You're taking my freedom, that person doesn't see them spending money, they see them spending freedom. Does that make sense? And vice versa, when that person comes back and has a go at them, they're not thinking, oh, you don't want me to spend money, you want to take the joy away from me. You don't want me to be happy, because I get happiness from freedom. And it's very important you do this values conversation, what is money to me? What does money mean to me? And you write it down. What does money really mean to me? And you write, you write a list down, you look through the list and you look and you think, actually, which one of those is really, really important? Which one of those was superficial and what's really, really important? We cover this in the Money Plan book um, quite considerably, intensely, sorry. And it's really important to get your value base right um, so that when one of you goes off and has a spending spree, you understand what that spending spree is about. And it's not that they're trying to deprive you of your freedom they're actually seeking what it gives them. And spending money is not wrong. Let's be clear about this. Spending money is not wrong. I don't care what anyone else says. It's what you want that matters, okay? Spending money you don't have is wrong. Spending it on a credit card, spending the bank's money because it's not yours, I think that's theft. You shouldn't do that, even if they give you permission. But spending money that you have and you've earned and it's allocated to you is not wrong. If you enjoy it, go and enjoy it. That's absolutely fine. Does that, how does that fit with the, the value set? 
Yeah, and, and that, that's important. And I guess that, that leads on to uh, kind of different situations because if we're, if we're lucky, I guess you could say maybe we're, maybe myself and my partner are, are in a similar-ish financial situation. Maybe we earn around the same amount of money and maybe that makes things a bit easier when it comes to combining finances. But what if one of us has debt and the other one doesn't or mm. one of us earns 80 grand a year and the other one's... Yeah, brilliant, brilliant question. Yeah, really good question. How you combine those and how you mix those. Yeah. Um, we're all seeking one thing in life, and that's happiness. And there are different layers before we get to being happy. And one of those layers that we put in front of ourselves is money. And we sometimes say, money will make me happy. Okay, not everyone says that, but some people say money will make me happy. And it's not true. Okay, what, what we're really, really after is happiness. And if you're going to put a barrier of saying, well, actually, this money is mine, it's mine, and I earned it, I'm going to keep it, then you're never truly going to be happy, not really fulfilled. You want to be um, selfless and, and share and share as much as you can. And when it comes to um, earnings, I personally believe what I try and encourage people to do is run the bank account system. Okay, so we've gone through this dozens of times, but where you have one account where all the bills come out of. Now, the money that goes into that account can either be spent split 50-50, so you each put in half. But is that fair if one of you is on £10,000 and one of you is on £100,000? How should that be? And is it fair that the person who's on £100,000 pays 90% of the money and the person who's on £10,000 pays 10% of the money? Is that fair? Is there a guilt feeling from the person earning £10,000? If the husband is earning £10,000 and the wife is on a hundred, and he's only putting in 10% of the money, how does he feel? And that's why it's communication, communication, communication. You have to discuss this. You know, in one breath, it's not fair that they split it equally because it means that um, person with the 10,000 pounds is left with less money to spend on their wham. And in the other breath, it's possibly not fair that the, the person on 10,000 pounds feels a bit of guilt that they're being looked after. But as long as the long-term plan is discussed, we have a vision of what our future looks like, We've got our goals as couples and individually, you can have individual goals, we've got goals as a couple, we know what we're working towards, then that should encourage the conversation to open things up a little bit. Now, debt is a really interesting one, okay? Debt is a really interesting one because we come across this quite often. Couple comes together, one has no debt, the other has a considerable amount of debt, okay? Yeah. And should the person with no debt take on the person who's got debt? And if you asked 100 people, you'd probably get, you know, 50 different answers, half say yes and half say no. What I would say is flip it on, the, on, the, on, the, on its head and say, the person with debt, if that person were to come into an inheritance or win a million pounds, should they share that with a person who didn't have the debt? And I think if you're willing to share your life together, and to, which is the most precious thing we have, it's the most valuable thing we have, if we're willing to share our life together, surely we're willing to share our money together and we'll share our debt and we'll share our investments, and we'll share our um, liabilities and our inheritances and things. Where you've got to make sure that you're right is that when you make that decision, there's no reason to believe that it wouldn't be a long-term plan. Um, so that you've got a long-term vision, there's no reason to believe that I'm not going to be with this person for the rest of my life. That is my plan, that is my focus, that's my intention. And I'm going to go into it with both feet with the commitment that, okay, we're going to work this thing together. Um, if you've got one foot in the relationship and one foot out, because you can't quite make up your mind. I don't really believe you're in the relationship personally, um, and perhaps you shouldn't do that. 
you should maybe sort of you know spend more time on yourself and deciding how your future looks. But when it comes to sharing debt, if you're fully committed for the long term, then I think, yeah, work it as a couple, get it paid off together as quickly as possible, celebrate your wins as you go through it, and most of all, take on good money habits now so that you don't incur larger debts in the future. Yeah, okay. Okay, so let, let's fast forward a little bit further. One of the, the major decisions and, and major goals for, for a lot of couples would be to, to have their own home, to buy a, to buy a property. Yeah. Um, and have you got any, any tips about going about that, kind of saving up for the house, any vehicles we can use that can, that can help with that as a couple? I think um, and th- this might sound a little bit sort of um, controversial, really, to start off with, but um, my, my, my advice would be to rent first. Move in together, get to really know each other, find out what it's like when they leave their pants on the floor and they don't hang things up and they don't put the dishes away. Because it's really simple falling in love and having a great, uh, fun honeymoon period but when the honeymoon period settles and you live together, there's no reason why the romance can't continue. But whether you like the individual for warts and all once you're living together is another thing. So by being in close proximity and living together, and I don't class a two-week holiday or a um, three-month tour around Australia as living together, when you really live together and you go to work and you come home tired and how you get along, by living together, you really find out what the individual's like. Okay, so my advice would be to first rent um, before you decide to buy. And when you start saving, start saving to buy individually. Um, And for a house purchase, if you've got a house purchase, which is more than 12 months into the future, the best place to start saving for a house purchase, um, if you're between 18 and 40, is through a lifetime ISA. Uh, And again, we've covered this before, but the lifetime ISA, the LISA, allows you to put in up to £4,000 in a tax year. So we're coming up to the end of the tax year at the moment. £4,000 in a tax year and get a 25% bonus on that money. So that's a great place. You can only have those in an individual name. So if you're going into it as a couple, one of you can have one and the other one can have one. You both have the £4,000 allowance. You both get the 25% bonus on it. And that gets paid monthly on your contributions in. I just want to clarify that because there was a question um, I had yesterday when I was presenting. How does it actually work? You put in £100 to the fund, the government give you a £25 bonus at the end of that month. Uh, If that grows up to, say, £3,000, when you put in another £100, you get 25% on the £100 you put in. It's always on the contribution. Um, So that's a great way of doing it individually because if actually whilst you're renting, you're saving into your lifetime ISA, you realise actually things haven't worked out quite as expected. Maybe I don't want to move in with this individual anymore. Um, you're not tied to that individual. You can then go off uh, and use your lifetime ISA either to buy someone on your own or with somebody else. Okay, so I, at that stage, I possibly would keep my finances separate and use the house purchase as the commitment. The only thing that I possibly would join at that stage is the bills account because it's a great opportunity to start managing money together. So you set, use the bank account system, you have a bills account, and then you each put a combined amount of money into that account to pay the um, regular ongoing bills uh, for the household and get, get you, if one of you is into finance and watching things like this and the other one is, isn't, try and encourage them to understand a little bit. It doesn't mean that they have to be as into it as you, but just that they are aware of the strategies and they buy into the strategies that you're buying into so that you're both singing off the same hymn sheet. Okay. 
it's uh, the only other thing I'd probably jump in and say about buying a house together is when there's a gift from a parent. Okay, so um, I don't know if I should use the word often, but um, fairly frequently, uh, when you but when children buy a house, the parents want to help the children onto the housing ladder, or the grandparents want to help the children onto the housing ladder, and that's done by way of a cash sum gift. Um, so they can get them on the house ladder. And not always can both sets of parents afford to do this. And sometimes it's just one set of parents. So what we would suggest to our clients when they do this is that they arrange with their solicitor or their conveyancer that that's done via a way of a, a deed of trust. So that the gift coming from the parent is done as a trust actually you know, happened with myself and my wife when we come together. Her parents were very generous and helped us onto the housing ladder. And they did it as a deed of trust. Um, the the irony is we'd forgotten about this gift all these many years, um, and then I think it was about seven years or so after we sold our first house, we went to sell it. We was expecting all the the equity back to us because um, we had a period of time where we were in between houses, and um, it, it, they said no, we can't pay it back to you because this much money is actually owned by Nikki's parents. <laughs> so that they had to they wrote it off. They they were fine. They they signed it off, so it actually came to us. So they actually made the gift to us but they could see after seven years that we were going to stay together kind of thing. And they were happy with that. What it does, it just protects that gift from the parents uh, to the children. If that relationship break down, that money would go back to the donor. That's called a deed of trust. And pretty much every solicitor or conveyancer who does your legal work will be able to sort that out for you as well. Okay, great. That's good. All right. So let, let's keep jumping down our timeline and, and let's look more towards older age and, and retirement and, and planning ahead for that and saving for that. Yeah. Again, what, what, what can we do as a couple? Yeah, so we, we, we've got some uh, we've got some very lovely clients and I don't know the, what the percentage is between them, but some of them manage their money independently and others manage it jointly. And I would say there isn't, I can't see, I'm not a statistician, I can't see a correlation between those that manage it independently of being more successful than those, those that manage it jointly. Um, one of the things that as a planner that we tend to do with our clients is we encourage them to equalize their estate. Now that sounds a complex term, but what we're really saying by that is you want a similar amount of assets in the husband and the wife's or each partner's name. Um, and this comes for retirement planning as well. So if one of you's got a particularly large pension um, and we want to try and also build up the other person's pension. Now there are trade-offs with this and it becomes a, an area in its own right but if I sort of jump the trade-offs and just explain to you why we try to do it, the reason we try to do it is what we're trying to avoid is when we approach retirement we've got one partner with so much income coming in that they're paying higher rate tax or possibly additional rate tax and then we've got one partner with no income whatsoever other than the state pension. So they're losing some of their tax-free personal allowance and then losing their 20% ban. If we can equalize the uh, retirement income, so if we can try and encourage there more, being more money plowed into the, um, uh, the lower income earner or the lower pension income earner, so we're equalizing the pensions at retirement, it just makes it a little bit more of a tax-efficient um, retirement strategy for both of them. Now, what we're looking at here really is um, slightly more mature individuals in age, not necessarily in relationship terms, because it could be a relationship that's formed later on in life or a second relationship or third, um, but those people who are um, basically matured in age, so they've actually had time to build up their, their retirement plans. The only sticking point that is, and it kind of throws it on its head, is 
generally speaking, the person with the larger retirement income or retirement pot is a higher earner and therefore is paying more tax today. So it's a discussion point. What's more important? I think it's really important for each individual to have their own retirement pots and therefore we should try and make sure we also fund the lower pension individual as well. Okay, great. Yeah, really useful stuff. Okay, so I guess we, we can do something on couples without covering what happens if the relationship breaks down, if it, if it goes a little bit wrong. And I don't want to get too into it. It's obviously a very emotional subject, but money can get very messy in that situation, can't it? Yeah, it, it can. It can. And um, reg, regularly, often I would do consultations with individuals to... I'm not a trained mediator, but almost like mediate or come up with some kind of financial solution for that family where it's a win-win scenario. And it, don't get me wrong, it's definitely not always easy and it's not always acceptable to everyone. But what we're looking for is the bigger picture. And once you, once you fast forward past the hurt phase in your timeline of life, so we're here, we're going through this period where um, it's nice and amicable until we start negotiating on the finer detail and some people feel um, deprived or let down or untrusted and therefore are hurting and therefore sometimes make irrational decisions. And ones that if we fast forward 10 years or 20 years and we look back, we might have decided to make a different decision. And the chap I was with this week, um, I kind of just said to him, hey, look, it doesn't seem unfair what is being asked. I know this is not the case in every case. What was being asked from the, from the, uh, the wife well, didn't seem unfair. And by him settling that with her request, he clears his mind. You know, at the moment, he's a businessman. At the moment, a lot of his time and energy is being used up worrying and being hurt himself about the situation. But if we just step over the line and say, okay, that's gone, that's done, settled. Let me focus on the future because that's what I can control. Can't control the past, what's happened. I can control the future. Let me focus on, the, focus on the future and start working on building that up myself. And I know I can now walk with my head and shoulders up high knowing that deep down in my core, I've done the right thing. I may, I may have paid more money than I'd hoped, but actually that other individual has left the relationship with what they wanted and I now can focus on my life and my future and build things up. So it is a difficult position. It is certainly not something I would try and um, say that I can cover in something like this. But the key things are look at the bigger picture and ask yourself, will this matter in 10 years' time? You know, will this really matter? So, uh... Okay, great. All right. And I, I, I guess um, let, let's, let's come back to the happy couple that are still together and, and again, almost po even post-retirement planning and protecting our, our joint income and our finances, and particularly when you start to bring family in, wills and children and things like that. Again, any, any good tips on, on how to go about this? Yeah, so um, relationship still together. We're, 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 we're more mature in our years. I say it every single week almost. Um, let's make sure we've got LPAs, lasting power of attorneys. They're essential. Um, and let's make sure that our wills are arranged in such a way that we would be proud of them. Okay, so they're a document that you're never really going to experience yourself because you're not going to be around when it's read. So it's your last testament. It's your last wish on this planet of what happens to what you what you became. Um, so 
a couple of things that we, we talk about when we talk about wills is including trust in the will. And if you go to a solicitor and they're not happy or they talk you out of the a trust, just get a second opinion. I'm not saying the solicitor would be wrong because I don't know your situation, but it's always worthwhile just getting a second opinion because often a trust can protect assets for future generations. Now, I know some people have had bad experiences with trusts, and often that's because they've not been explained to people correctly. But one of the things that you could consider is to ensure that in the event of the first person passing away, so in my will, for example, you could leave your share of your home into a trust, as opposed to leaving it to your survivor or your partner. And the reason you would do that is so that in the event of your survivor passing away, you know what you had is going to go to the people that are important to you. So, for example, your children. So, if you structure the trust to, to say, okay, if X happens, then Y happens, then this is where I want my money to go. Yeah, in, in, in simple terms, it's called an interest in possession. So, what it simply means is my share of the house on my death will go into a trust. My surviving spouse will have an interest in that possession, have an interest in that house. But it means when that interest f finishes, so I, when my partner dies, rather than my share of the house go to my partner, because it's in trust, it goes down to my children, my nominee, nomination beneficiaries. So what it does, it just protects it, because if I'd left my house to my partner, my husband, my wife, okay, and when, if they were to remarry, it becomes a matrimonial asset. And you'd be surprised at the number of couples I come across who say, Actually, yeah, my dad left the house to his new wife. And when my dad died, my new wife left it to her children or his new wife left it to her children. And we were disinherited. That's happened frequently, regularly. And this very simple mechanism protects that. It means the event of I passing away, I leave my share of the house into a trust. My partner, my wife, in my case, has an interest in that share. She, she can live in the house as long as she wants. She can move, she can downsize, she can upsize, okay? She only ever owns half the house. So in the event of her remarrying, if she were to get a divorce, my understanding of matrimonial law, only her shares at risk. If there's divorce lawyers watching this, they might argue that. But what we're really doing it for is that if she dies, or when she dies, she is gonna die unfortunately, but when she dies, my share does not fall into her estate, it will go to my children. Her share will go in accordance to her will, whatever she decides to do at that time. It's a very straightforward, very very um, vanilla way of doing a, a will. It's not um, esoteric trust planning. Um, it's fairly common for a solicitor who's fairly au fait with that. Um, great document on our website called Key Questions in Relation to My Will. There's one, Key Questions in Relation to My LPA. Go to warranty.com, go to resources section, download that. Fill that in. Use it as a discussion document with a solicitor or will writer or give us a shout. We can sort of point in the right direction. All right, great. Well, that's a, a nice run through of our, our, our couple. Yeah, it's good. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, let's, let's remember, money is just the oil that allows the mechanism to work well, okay? Uh, our relationships, the number one thing important. Don't allow money to come in front of the relationship. Make sure you love each other. And spending money is not wrong. Just spending other people's money is wrong. All right, great. Thanks very Have much. Have a great day, Paul. Take yeah. care.